Thanks, Joe. Hi, everybody. Oh, that was a bit rubbish. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Um, it's the first time I've preached in ages. Sorry about that. Or maybe that's good for you. I don't know. Um, as some of you will know, I, I had an operation, so I've been recovering from that. And you guys have been very, very kind and encouraging and supportive in many ways. And I'm very grateful to that. And um, I'm feeling pretty well. Uh, I have a big scar down here. I won't show you, no, it's fine. Um, but I'm generally doing pretty well and very grateful for your love, your care, your prayers and your support. I'm glad to be getting back in the saddle or the pulpit or whatever we call this thing. Um, we started last week a new series just for the summer called Multiply Faith. And um, Claire shared the story of Ruth. And I'm really jealous that Claire got to share that story because it's a wonderful story. Um, and um, it's a story, Ruth, if you missed it, you need to check it out. It's on YouTube. Um, it's a story of reconciliation and restoration. And it's a fantastic story. Ruth, although it has major sort of implications right across the whole Testament, um, uh, the whole of the Old and New Testament, um, it kind of feels like a personal story. Whereas today, we're going to do another story of someone in the Old Testament. And it's also a story of incredible restoration. But it feels like it's less personal and more national on a bigger scale. And that's the story of Nehemiah. Um, the book of Nehemiah is found in the Old Testament. And it's a short, we're not going to read it all. It's a short book. It's 13 chapters long. Um, we, we, this is going to be a two-week series. So what I'm going to, I'm going to read some of it today. And what I suggest you do is go home and read it this week and come back fully prepped to be tested next Sunday. No, I don't mean that. But, um, or, or another thing, if you don't fancy reading, you could do, um, actually last week Claire showed us the whole of the, you know the Bible project, they do these overviews. And you could look up the Nehemiah, um, it's actually Ezra and Nehemiah together, and you could watch that. We're not going to do that um, yet. Uh, we're not going to do that this morning. I'm, we are going to read the first chapter. So if you've got... Nehemiah, if you've got a Bible or if you've got uh, the Bible on your phone, and then you, it'd be great to turn that up. It's in the Old Testament. If you're on the phone, the best way to do it is to go to the search engine and type N-E-H, <laughs> Nehemiah. Um, and I've just realized I didn't prepare, so I'm just finding it as well. Um, just by way of a context and a bit of an overview, um, this is a little bit simplistic, but I found this on the internet. This is a timeline of the whole Bible. Um, you don't need to get into the details, but just to say, um, if you think about the whole Bible in these four chunks, with Jesus being the fourth on the New Testament, you can kind of broadly, there's many ways of doing this, but you can broadly divide the Old Testament into three sections. There's Abraham to David, and all of the stuff of God's covenant with his people, and uh, them, them going all through the wilderness, and then making it to Jerusalem, and coming into uh, an incredible place uh, in Jerusalem, uh, led by David, um, but then it kind of didn't go right, and then we get into the exile bit, and then there's the third section with the exile and back to Messiah, and um, this is where we're landing today. We're landing on the, the section of the Old Testament where God's people, the Jews, have been in exile, they've been captured by Babylon, they've spent 70 years there. And this is about the restoration of God's people back into 
um, Jerusalem. Nehemiah was a Jewish leader, Jewish by culture, but working as a high-ranking official actually in the Persian government. His job was that he was a cupbearer to the king. And this is about the part that he played, as I said, in the restoration of Jerusalem. So the Jews have spent 70 years exiled in Babylon. And um, after 70 years, though, Babylon itself was taken over by its neighbors, Persia. And the king of Persia was much more sort of favorable to the Jews than the Babylonians have been. And he even started to allow them back to their homeland. And so just here's one more timeline. And what you see here is um, a timeline of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah were originally, it seems, designed as one book, one big story. So we're taking the Nehemiah part, and that's the third section. But just, just by way of um, context, the books of Nehemiah and Ezra thought to have been one complete book, and they tell three stories about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And they're describing the fulfillment of God's promise, which we read about in Jeremiah 25, that despite the captivity and the exile of his people, God would ultimately restore his people to their land. He said he would do that, and he did do that. And it happens through three people. The first person is a guy called Zerubbabel. You read this in Ezra. We're not going into this today. Zerubbabel is the guy who goes back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. If you remember, as part of the capture of Jerusalem, the temple that um, David and Solomon had built uh, so incredibly was torn down. Um, But Zerubbabel is the guy who goes back first to rebuild the temple. Okay, Um, And then about 50 years after the temple is rebuilt, the, 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 the worship is restored. Then Ezra goes back, and Ezra is more of a priest than a teacher, and he goes back, takes back a whole other load of exiles, and starts to re-teach God's people the law, the Torah, uh, and God's commands. And he's, a, he's like a pastor and a teacher. He's rebuilding community, and he's encouraging God's people, again, back to this place of faithfulness to God through worship um, and through the law, the keeping of the law. And then soon after, after Ezra, hot on his heels, just 12 years later, this is when we come to the story of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah brings yet more people back. And Nehemiah's job is not that the temple's been restored, the people are returning to God. Nehemiah's job is to restore the walls of the city, the rebuild the walls of the city. Now, if you look through all of those three stories, you will see some similarities in all of them you'll see that each of the leaders are sent by the king of Persia at the time to go back to Jerusalem to help the remnant, the few people that are left in Jerusalem, God's people. You see that each of them, as they are doing that, encounters opposition from those who are living in the land and around Jerusalem and those who are not practicing Israel's laws and customs and those who are against the restoration project. And there's this tension throughout the whole of Ezra and Nehemiah um, and it's all a bit, it's a tension between, on the one side, you've got God's people needing to settle safely back into a land that was originally designated for them, and ultimately building walls to keep them safe. But those walls also keep others out. And it's, the tension is between that idea and the biblical idea that God wants a city without walls, ultimately. That God's kingdom is expanding, and this nation who God chose to be his covenant people, also had a role to bless, to be a blessing and to bring his kingdom actually in the whole of the world. There are biblical examples. We heard about one last week from Claire where God's people actually do end up intermarrying with people from other nations. We heard about Ruth and Boaz. 
And so that tension is present throughout these books. I'm not getting into that. I'm just flagging it up. Um, but it's, it's, it's not really resolved in Ezra or Nehemiah. It's only really resolved in the much bigger narrative of the Bible. But despite that, um, Nehemiah is a fantastic book and there's loads to learn from. And if you want to know more about that stuff, you can look up the Bible project. Then when we take the book of Nehemiah, you can basically divide it into five sections. And we're going to look at the first three today and the next two next week. You can look at, there, there is prayer where Nehemiah weeps and prays on hearing the news about Jerusalem's walls broken down. There is preparation where Nehemiah starts to return to Jerusalem, having asked permission of the king and, and having received um, um, resources from the king and prepares to build the walls. And then there is the rebuilding itself, where the walls are complete and Nehemiah leads the project, despite opposition, despite conspiracy. And then the next two sections, which we'll come to next week, are about renewal, where Ezra and Nehemiah together lead the people in a festival and a renewal of their covenant and a dedication. And then there's reality and hope. There's the fact that the walls are dedicated, but the reality is it doesn't get rid of all the problems. Now, you can watch the summary or you can, summary or you can read it for yourself. But this morning, what I'd like us to do is turn to Nehemiah 1, and I'm going to read it from the NIV version. And it says this, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, the decrees, and the laws that you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. I'm going to summarize the next part rather than read it. But in chapter two, what happens is that Nehemiah goes to the king, having asked God for his help. And he asks the king for a leave of absence to go and lead a project back in Jerusalem, back in his homeland, rebuilding the walls. Now, Nehemiah is a high-ranking official. He's a very valuable guy for the king. It's a bold move. It's a big ask. But he does ask, and he is given permission and authority and the resources to travel back to Jerusalem. 
And so the next part of chapter two, we read about Nehemiah and his team inspecting the ruins, just having a look around, doing a sort of fact-finding mission, preparing, looking at what reality is going on on the ground. And then the last section, which I will just read to you from chapter two, only because I find it really stirring and inspiring, um, is where Nehemiah then sort of stands before the people and he kind of gives them the vision speech. And this is chapter two, verse 17. And he says, I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is it you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. And that's the end of chapter two. And I love that. It feels like a, a Shakespeare speech or something where at the end of the king is standing there going, come on, rah, rah, let's do this, people. Um, and so what happens next, um, in, um, just by, in summary, I'm not expecting you to see all those words, by the way, but that is a picture of what Jerusalem something like would look like um, actually, you can see when they rebuilt the walls, they rebuilt it smaller. Um, um, but all of, these, all of these walls and gates are there. And the rebuilding started at the sheep gate, which symbolizes the sacrifice. That's the place where they would bring the sheep in to the temple. And so basically, Nehemiah started at the sheep gate and he went around the whole of the place and he assigned different sections, different gates and different sections of the walls to all the different families and all the different people that were there. And um, they got to building. And while they were building, there was plenty of opposition. There were people, those, they were highlighted in that little section I just read. Opposition came, comes first in the form of verbal abuse, then in the form of physical threat. And Nehemiah has to get the families to basically share building with security. So in other words, one person's building and one person's standing there with a sword waiting just to fight off anybody who's coming and threatening. And so it seems like they're going to get slowed down. Um, but the operation continues and the opposition continues, ultimately with distraction and disinformation and ultimately conspiracy against Nehemiah. But to cut a long story short, all of that fails and the walls get built and they get built in 52 days. And that reconstruction of the wall of Jerusalem brought safety to the people in the city. And not just safety, but honor. You see, city walls keep enemies out. For the previous 50 years, even though the temple had been restored and worship was going on, the remnant of God's people were vulnerable. Vulnerable to attack, vulnerable to their enemies. But once the walls were rebuilt, it's almost like Jerusalem's credibility went right up again. And it's summarized in this verse in chapter 6. When Nehemiah summarizes and says, when all of our enemies heard of it, that's the rebuilding that had happened. All the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. And that's a kind of summary of the first seven chapters of Nehemiah. Now, I've heard this, I've heard this book preached a few times. And it's clearly an incredible feat of restoration. And it's led by a remarkable and effective leader. And one common way of preaching or analyzing this book 
is to focus on the narrative of the project, the building project, okay? Um, and particularly on Nehemiah's example of just fantastic, strong, strategic leadership. I've heard this story cited in many Christian leadership articles. And I've heard it preached in several churches who are planning building campaigns. And all of that is true. Nehemiah clearly is an incredible strategic leader. This is an example of great project management with amazing faith and clear strategic steps. You know, pray, prepare, share vision, delegate, manage resources, motivate people, deal with the opposition. Expect to be, have people come at you, but don't be sidetracked or put off by it. Stay focused. And if you wanted to summarize that narrative, it would be with faith, God and his people can achieve extraordinary things. And if only it were that simple, there's nothing wrong with that. I love that. It's absolutely true. Nehemiah needed unshakable, incredible faith to pull this project off. But that's not where I want to focus for today. Because I think there's a deeper message for us. And it's all around chapter one, which we read. And chapter one is where the story highlights in quite some detail the prayer that Nehemiah prayed before he started on this project. You see, before Nehemiah even went to ask for the king for permission, before he traveled to Jerusalem, before he began to get the resources together, before he formulated any kind of a plan, Nehemiah took the time to fast and pray. If only before every project I embark on, I took the time to fast and pray. It's not easy to do. Well, for some maybe it is for you. It's not for me. What kind of prayers do we pray? When do we pray? That little word, pray, it carries, it means such a lot. And it carries, for some of us, a lot of baggage, a lot of connotations, boring prayer meetings. What, we've got to pray again? Well, I've got to talk to God again. Why can't I just get on with things? But on the other hand, it also unlocks so much. It's a little word. We did a whole course on this with Pete Gregg a few, before lockdown, wasn't it? Um, Prayer unlocks projects and kingdoms. And so before embarking on any kind of project, there's this major strategic faith step, and that's to pray. I think faith and strategy do go absolutely hand in hand, but also so do faith and prayer. And it's almost invisible And it's very easy to overlook that little part of verse 4 where Nehemiah says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. And for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. See, this man, clearly a man of immense faith. But instead of focusing on a strategic plan, let's look at what he did before that, his prayer and his preparation. And the way I want to do that for the rest of this talk is just to look back over chapter 1 and just pick out how it was exactly that Nehemiah prayed. You see, I think there are six things that Nehemiah did that we can read about in chapter one about how he prayed and there's stuff to learn from and the first one is that he engaged his emotions he says I sat down and wept for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven I love this about Nehemiah he's not afraid to express the deep deep sadness loss pain and grief that he is feeling when he hears that his home city is a wreck. 
It says he sat before God and he wept. And it wasn't just for five minutes. It was for days. For some days. Have you ever spent some days crying? Weeping? This is an example of an emotionally healthy leader who is in touch with his feelings and who doesn't feel the need to stand up in front of his people or his family or anybody and say, "Ah, everything's fine. Because it's clearly not. And before he jumps into action or even into prayer, I love that Nehemiah just took the time to be present to the feelings. A little bit like mindfulness, but over days. He's paying attention. What am I feeling right now? And so what about us? What question for all of us? Where are our broken walls? What is our equivalent of Nehemiah hearing about the walls of his city being such in such a state? What causes us, honestly, to sit down and weep? Maybe it's personal. Maybe it's to do with health, physical health, mental health. Maybe it's to do with employment, finances. Maybe it's to do with strained or broken relationships, loneliness. Or maybe it's not us particularly maybe it goes beyond us it's our family it's our community it's our friends the people close to us who are suffering who are really going through it or maybe it's even bigger than that in Nehemiah's case it was a big thing maybe it's our culture Kevin was just sort of leading us as we prayed about this this morning maybe it's the social problems that we see the news the war the famine the poverty the politics The economic crisis, the government, the injustice, the persecution, the stuff that's happening in our wider world. How engaged do we allow ourselves to become in what we're seeing around us? Nehemiah sat down and wept. And it's okay to sit down and weep about the stuff that's going on. Another question that I think is worth contemplating in the mix of this, is where have we been sent to? Because Nehemiah, although he'd grown up in captivity, had obviously felt an affinity with his homeland culturally. Where have we been sent to? What are the pla- where are the places where God gives us favour? What vision and passion do we carry? What is God laying on our hearts? I'll just let you into one of mine. I am really, really, really exercised and concerned about the state of mental health among young people in our culture and in our nation right now. I was before COVID and I am even more after COVID. And I know some young people who are really going through it and looking around at you, nodding, many of you do too. Okay? That's just something that I feel concerned about a lot of the time. Um, Primarily... He, I have influence here in the church here and in Winchester. So I assume that God might want us, me, us to do something about young people's mental health in Winchester. We've prayed about that for some time. And then we were offered a youth bus and we said yes. And in September, it's going, starting to go out to schools to start addressing some of the problems of young people and mental health. That's just one example. Grieving and mourning is an essential part of suffering or loss. And it's so important to process our emotions in a healthy way. God is with us in our troubles, whether they're individual, personal troubles, or whether they're big, corporate troubles. 
2 Corinthians 3, 1, sorry, says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. The Bible says that God comforts us in our troubles. It's okay to spend our time weeping and mourning and engaging with our emotions over the stuff that's going on. But I would add this, it can also be possible to get stuck there and never move on from there. And we've got to be careful of that too. Because Nehemiah didn't just weep and mourn, he took the time to feel the feelings and then he took those feelings into the next stage, which for him was fasting and intercession. He, and he allowed his emotions to drive his prayers. And that's kind of what I want us to learn from. You see, the way that Nehemiah prayed, the next thing he did was that he declared truth. He said his prayer opened with this, Lord, the God of heavens, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeping his commandments. He starts with declaration. He starts with praise. He first looks to God, not to the brokenness. Now, that's not always easy when we are going through it. It's very easy to look at our own stuff and the things that are going on around us, especially when situations are just getting, they don't seem like they're getting any better. But Nehemiah does this, he looks to God first, he declares truth first. When we plan our worship sets here, we try very hard to sing primarily about God, about his nature and his character. And sometimes we do sing about us, but we try very hard not to sing about us first. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? God's songs, not me songs. It can be so easy to forget this and just jump into our own stuff. The things that are right in front of us. And let me get this. Let me make sure you hear this. God does care about the things that are in front of us. It's not wrong. But it's just a really good thing to do. It's a really good principle to look to him first. You see, he is the creator of heavens and the earth. He's got the resources of the universe at his fingertips. He wants to act to bring about change and kingdom transformation. He wants to bring about healing. But he wants to do it with us. The relationship he has with us is so important to him. It talks about it there, the covenant of love with those who love him. He, he doesn't just want to fix things on his own. He wants to fix things with us. He wants us to be involved. And so when we worship him, we, it's a really good thing. Whenever we're praying, we just start to declare the truth about who he is. Now, if you don't know the truth about what, who God is, here's a little list for you. Okay, Here's just something I googled. <laughs> okay, Brilliant Bible search engine, Google. Literally, what is the truth about God from the Bible? Here's just 12. There was more, but I boiled it down to, the, down to the, uh, the summary statements. God is trustworthy. God is for the sinner. All of this is in the Bible. God's grace is greater. He reveals his glory through his people. I won't go through it all, but there is the truth about God. And if you need to know the truth about God, if you don't know how to start your prayers, if you're feeling so dragged down or bogged down or weighed down by what's going on, then this is a really good place to start. Declare the truth about God, what, who, who he is from the Bible. And not just who he is, what he's done. What he's done in history, what he's done in our lives. Think back to the times when God has blessed you or kept his promises or been faithful to you and start there. If you don't already do this, I strongly suggest that we make a journal, that we document what God does in our lives because that's the place to look back to when things are tough. Um, I love this, absolutely love this verse um, Psalm 78, 4, we will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. We need to keep the stories of God alive. It's one of the things, I'll just let you into a little secret. 
in our family, we've never been that good at trying to read the Bible together. We kind of tried, but it hasn't really ever really consistently worked out. But one thing that we have been faithful at doing, and I'm going to honor Joe. Joe's the one who's done this, mainly not me, is telling the stories of God. It's telling our kids what God's been doing. It's telling the stories of what God's done in our lives and in other people's lives around. And I think that's so important that we declare the truth about who God is from the Bible and also that we tell the truth, declare the truth about what God has done. The third thing, the third way that Nehemiah prays is that he intercedes day and night. His prayer is, God, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayers your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. This is not just a once-only deal. This is persistent prayer. This is a regular thing. This is a season of prayer and fasting. Nehemiah is boldly asking God to look and listen and hear the prayers. And it's not for himself. It's not for me, he says. It's for your servants, your people. And that word interceding, intercession we talk about, interceding means to act or to interpose on behalf of someone who's in difficulty or trouble, to speak for them. You might intercede with a governor for a condemned man. Nehemiah is not pleading, he is inviting God to spend time with him and to take his request seriously and saying, look, God, help us with this. Please come and help us with this. It's a bit like the role of the priest in the Old Testament temple, bringing the prayers of the people to God. In the Old Testament temple, they would burn incense day and night on the altar in front of the Holy of Holies to symbolize the prayers of the people. This is the prayers of the saints. But we don't just believe in a few priests. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. We can all do this. We can all intercede. We can all bring the cares and the concerns and the needs and the requests of others who are in need before God. That's what he calls us to do. It's not just presenting a list, by the way. Intercession doesn't just mean coming with your list. I mean, if my kids came to me with a list of needs as a father, what, how would I react to that, I wonder? I mean, I am going to meet their needs. But as a father, I want relationship with them. So when they just come and say, right, I like this. Please you sort this out. Please you do this. My reaction is usually not the best. Okay, let's sit down. Let's talk about that. Why do you need that? Let's think about that. Let's, let's take some time. Let's have a relationship. I am, my role as a father is to meet their needs. I understand that. But I'm more interested in spending time with them and understanding what's in their hearts and helping them grow than I am in just providing everything that they need in a sort of cold-hearted, soulless way. Do, 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 do you get what I'm saying? And so before he's taken one step towards Jerusalem, Nehemiah sat day and night in the Lord's presence talking to him about what he needs. Philippians 4, one of my favorite verses, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. There is no, I don't know who said this, but it's a fairly common quote. There is no great movement of God that ever occurred that didn't begin with an extraordinary outpouring of prayer. And if we want God to do stuff, then we need to take the time to pray. We currently have two prayer groups that meet consistently every month, have done for many, many, many months. One's around justice, one's around global mission. They're consistent and they're faithful. And I know that God answers their prayers. 
And if you want to join them, let us know. We can help you connect up. We're looking also to develop a more general rhythm of prayer. From September, I'll talk about that a bit later. The next thing that Nehemiah does is he confesses his sin. I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly. We've not obeyed the commands, the decrees, and the laws that you gave your servant Moses. Before he even presents his actual requests, Nehemiah does this remarkably honest thing. He confesses sin. And he doesn't just confess other people's sin. He owns it himself. I've done this wrong. We've messed up. My family have messed up. My generation has messed up. My father's family and everybody else as well. He stands in the gap where others might not be able to. And on behalf of the whole nation, Nehemiah repents. He says, this is how it is. We have so messed up here. He's very clear. He's very honest. He's very humble. I love that. He doesn't mess around. doesn't try to hide things. doesn't try to avoid the issue. doesn't fudge it. He just says it like it is. I messed up and I'm sorry. We messed up and we're sorry. And it takes character to do that. There's nothing worse, you know this, there's nothing worse than somebody who refuses to admit that they were wrong or just makes excuses or doesn't really own their stuff. It just breaks down trust and it ruins relationships. But genuine, humble confession restores relationships and God is all about restoring relationship. In fact, he says in 2 Chronicles, if my people who are called will humble themselves and pray, then I will hear from heaven. Nehemiah reminds God of his word. I love this. He says, remember the instruction you gave to your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if you're exiled people at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. God, you said this. This is what you said to us. I'm just reminding you. I do a lot of that in my prayers. I remind God of what he said. In fact, I even write them down so that he can read them so I don't have to keep saying them. These people are your servants. Please come and do what you said you would do. You said you would scatter us when we messed up. We did mess up. We're sorry, but you also said you would gather us back together if we could return to you, and that's what we're trying to do. I think that's so important. So it's worth taking a moment, isn't it, to ask ourselves, what has God said to us? What has God said to us that we haven't seen come about? What significant words have been spoken to us? What truth from the Bible can we declare over our situation? Not to hype things up, but to remind ourselves and to press into the plans God has for us as we partner with him. Lastly, at the end of all that, having done all that, oh, I wonder what happened to number six. Maybe I never got it. He prays specific, bold requests. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. And Nehemiah's very specific prayer is about his meeting that he's got with the king. He says, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, the man's the king. 
So after declaring the truth about God and pressing in day and night and confessing his own sin and the sins of his people and reminding God of the words that he's already spoken, Nehemiah presents his specific bold request to God. Please help me with this meeting. Listen to my prayer. Give me favor with the king. This is a targeted and specific prayer. It wasn't, oh God, bless me. Oh, God, help me. I mean, there's nothing wrong with those prayers. Sometimes that's what we can pray. But in this case, it was targeted. It was specific. He needed the king's permission. He needed the king's resources. And so he channeled all his prayers into this meeting he's got. I love that he wasn't afraid to ask God for specific things. And, you know, whether we're praying for ourselves or whether we're in our own personal situations or whether we're praying interceding on behalf of groups or cities or regions or nations, Praying in faith looks like taking time to make sure we're engaging with God on a heart level and praying by engaging our emotions, declaring truth and sticking at it and confessing our sin and reminding God and ourselves of the words he's already spoken. Now, this isn't an instruction to you all. This is an invitation. I don't know about you. I personally want to have the kind of faith that Nehemiah had. I want to see walls rebuilt and massive projects undertaken. I want to see that bus out on the streets and in schools every day. I want to see our compassion ministry continuing to grow and thrive. I want to see our church continuing to fill up and start sending other churches and sites and places out because I think that God is doing something and I want to be part of it. In order to achieve all the incredible things that I think God is calling us to, for me, the first part is to respond to the invitation to dig in and pray. For myself, for the church, for the city, for the nation. And as leaders of the church, we met recently to try and discern what God was saying for the next season. And we sensed him inviting us into a rhythm of prayer, a more consistent, more constant rhythm of prayer. We're going to be launching this in the autumn. You don't have to know the details now. We'll tell you in September. But we're going to be kicking off with a week of prayer in mid-September. And then each month we're going to take a day to pray together where everybody's invited. You can join us on Zoom in the morning or at lunchtime or in person in the evening. And we're going to gather and we're going to pray. We've already seen God do some amazing things in response to specific and persistent prayer. We have this youth bus and it's on the road. We have a new assistant pastor coming in September to lead our kids and youth ministries. We have incredible external funding for our compassion projects and we have a new carpet. Okay? We sensed that God wants to do even more than that, much more. And that first he's inviting us to pull in closer and to spend time and to increase our faith by learning from a leader who knew how to pray. Why don't we stand together?